Well, if you're visiting with us, my name's Kyle. I want to say welcome to you. Thank you for uh, choosing to worship the Lord uh, with us today. We're glad that you're here. And uh, anyway, it's a good morning. It's a good morning to, to serve Jesus. Amen. So uh, I want to, I just want to kind of exhale too, right? I think that's kind of been a theme this morning. And I think it it's just amazing to me when we map out sermons uh, at New Life. Yeah, a lot of y'all don't realize this probably, but we we do that at a year a year at a time. So I, I know a year from now where we'll be um, in in our sermon series. We know where we're headed with that, and it's just continually amazing to me how timely God's word is, even though I didn't wait till the day before, two days before, to write that. You, you know what I'm saying? Like this is um, today is no exception. And uh, I just I echo the the whew, you know that everybody else kind of feels today. Uh, it's been a few weeks worth of uh, just what I've been calling the highest highs and the lowest lows. I, I, and I know there's probably higher highs and lower lows, but that's really how it's felt. And uh, so you know we've seen people who have been very sick uh, to the point of death sick. We have seen people die, and we're still mourning the loss of of life. Uh, yet, in the middle of it all, God has continued to show us just how good He is. Um, one of those things has been last Sunday we announced, so if you weren't here, I just want to throw this out for you. We announced that we have a contract on a new property. Amen? We are, uh, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the, the Lord has saw fit to lay in our laps a great opportunity, and, and we're very grateful uh, the building behind the library used to be the old University Assembly of God. Um, the, the church that was there has disbanded. They've shut their doors. That is, uh, that's sad in and of itself. Uh, I don't like that. Um, but I'm grateful for the Lord uh, to consider us for that property. And so we've entered a contract there and uh, hope to have a closing date for you by next week on when that will look like. So uh, anyway, so y'all get ready. Find your, uh, your working boots and your gloves and all that. We're going to need some help before long. Amen? And uh, it really is a great facility. I can't wait to see uh, to, for you guys to see it, to see you guys see it, and see you get as excited as, all, as some of us have since we've watched, looked in it. Um, the other thing is we'll, we'll definitely have some sort of a, a dedication service on that. So y'all keep your eyes open for that. I'd love uh, to do something like that separate from a Sunday morning just to dedicate that place to the Lord and uh, be able to operate hopefully for the next hundred plus years there. Amen. So uh, awesome. Then other good news on Thursday, a dear brother we've been praying for, Alec Testa. Karina's here. Y'all give Karina your love through hand clap. Amen. Uh, Brother Alec has been uh, brought home, and I say home as in Magnolia. He's at Wentworth, um, and he is doing very well. I went and saw him Friday. He's very angry that he's not able to be here this morning, but uh, he is, he's doing well. If you know Alec at all, uh, I don't think he'd be too upset if you stopped by and saw him. So uh, y'all, y'all, if you get a chance, go see Brother Alec, room 105 at Wentworth. And uh, anyway... So I'm here today, and I'm kind of like a lot of you, I'm just overwhelmed a little by life circumstances. I'm overwhelmed at God's continued goodness, uh, His faithfulness throughout it all. And I told Patricia the other night, I said, if 2018 doesn't finish the way it started, that won't hurt my feelings at all, right? It's just been crazy. And I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but what I really want to say is I'm extremely grateful to be with you this morning. 
I'm extremely grateful to be here worshiping God, uh, who I have no doubt, even more so on the tail end of this three weeks, four weeks, that uh, He is faithful and that His love is steadfast towards us. Amen. I stand here confidently saying that. So let's pray. Thank the Lord for being Him, for being who He is, and ask that He be with us today. Father, we, we pray to You now, and we come to You as children uh, who are in awe of our Heavenly Father. And Though life has its ups and downs, there is one thing that is steadfast, one thing that is immovable, and that's Your love and Your, your faithfulness. God, we thank You that You're faithful when the rest of the world feels like it's crumbling around us. We thank you that you're near to us in those moments. And so, Father, we get a little glimpse of this in our text today, and I just ask that you would be near to us now. Would you open our hearts today to see your word, to see Jesus today, to see your Son, and that in seeing him, would you help us to find life in his name? It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So we're currently in the series called John, and we subtitled it, Seeing Jesus Finding Life. We did this because, as most of you are aware now, in John chapter 20, John, the disciple of Christ, writes why he wrote the book. He tells us why. He said, I did this, I wrote all of these things so that you may see Jesus, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so today we're at the end of chapter 6, uh, now, I just want to give you a quick overview of what's happened in case you've missed the last couple of weeks. Jesus starts out in chapter 6 doing a great miracle. He feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So somewhere around eighteen to 20,000 people are fed off of five loaves and two fish that day. Just incredible, miraculous, right? Nobody, nobody here has that ability. So we said back then, God is big. He, he's so big, He can create from nothing something. He's so big that He can see our need before we know our need, and He can meet the need out of what looks like no opportunity for the need to be met. And this is who God is. And so it was neat to preach that a couple of weeks ago, and then all of a sudden, here we are having to believe this, you know? And then uh, what we saw is that as that happened, what we saw last week is that, or, or we saw at the end of that text, that the people wanted to take him by force and make him king right then because they had needs that needed to be met and Jesus was meeting those needs. And so they just thought, this is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, it must be that he's going to establish his kingdom on earth and, and reign forever that way. And so we want to go ahead and take him and make that happen. And what Jesus knew is that there is more at stake than physical life. There was spiritual life at stake. That spiritual life must be provided for. So Jesus withdraws. He goes up to a mountain to pray. The disciples leave him uh, there. And in the next day, the people are looking for Jesus. Where is he? Well, Jesus in the middle of the night joined his disciples by walking on the sea out in their boat. He joins them out there by walking on the sea. And he goes to the other side to Capernaum. And the people are left the next day looking for him like, man, we're hungry again. Where's that food at? We've got to go find this guy. So they go to Capernaum and they find him there and they begin to question him. And what Jesus reveals is that, um, in, or kind of in this moment, Jesus' popularity has skyrocketed. And we need to, we need to say that. In, in the world of numbers, he had big numbers. He had the best numbers. He had huge numbers, right? He, uh, 
And, and so, yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. And, uh, and so he had these numbers, and, and they immediately are wanting to make him king, and Jesus wants to show them that's not how this works. And, and so he said, we've got to accomplish this mission another way. And so Jesus begins to tell them, you're seeking the wrong bread. You're after the wrong bread. The bread that you're after will never satisfy you. He says, but I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me and eats will have eternal life, and I will never cast them away. And so the crowd becomes increasingly confused at this, but they're also angry about this because this is not what they want. But here's what Jesus was doing. This is what we tried to talk about some last week, and it's just going to roll into this week. Jesus was deconstructing mankind's, yours and mine, uh, self-sufficiency. This, this idea that we have to be self-sufficient, that we care for ourselves in all the ways, that we meet all of our needs and that we know what's best. We, don't we think this? So he begins to deconstruct it. and He makes this one pivotal statement which really ticked him off. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is revealing to them a deeper need, namely that we need the very work of God to happen within us if we're going to come to Jesus. For Jesus, these are words of eternal life, but for the crowd, these are words too difficult to comprehend, and they're getting angry about it. It's like we, we don't understand. And so the conversation continues in our text today, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John 6, verse 60. And I'm just going to read it to you. It says, When many of his disciples heard it, talking about this eating of my flesh, drinking my blood, if you abide in me by doing that, I'll abide in you. When they heard that, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And he says, then, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So Jesus, again, he knows where his life is headed. It's headed to death, it's headed to a resurrection, and it's headed to an ascension. He said, if you're offended by what I'm telling you now, just wait, buddy, until you see what's really going to happen. A perfect Messiah is going to be crucified. Now that's offensive or it should be. He says, do you take offense at this? And what if you see, were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, these disciples were followers. They're not, they're not true believers yet. They're following him because of all the good things he's done, all the miracles he's performed, and the fact that he fed them. And that's what they're after. And they reveal that. So here's, there, there's really, there's one statement that I want us to see today, but I'm just going to break it into two parts to keep you in suspense so you'll keep paying attention, okay? All right, there's, there's my trick today. This is it, all right? The first is this, the words of eternal life will either, one, harden your heart. Now, you can write that down in your notes. The words of eternal life, which Jesus is speaking here, will do two things. One, harden your heart. 
So let's look at a few verses that kind of help us see this rub between Jesus and His words, what He's saying to these people, and then their feelings about this. I want, I want to pull some other verses into this so you'll see this is not an isolated event in John. This is throughout God's Word. Okay, Galatians 5 says this. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Now, as a believer, you should be able to nod your head and say, yes, I know that's true. I know that my flesh and the spirit within me are at war with one another. Amen? But as an unbeliever, that's hard to see. As an unbeliever, you think, I've got it figured out. I know the best way. My way is right. Yada, yada, yada. I'm amazing. I don't need Jesus, right? You start to kind of think those things. I I met some guys recently just to kind of give you an example of this. A lot of times Christianity gets lumped in with all these other religions, right? And it's just, it's the anti-religion. If you really pay attention to Christianity, the call is nothing about you. And the call in all other religions is all about you. And that's the difference here. That's why this is life-giving and everything else is life-sucking. And so I met some guys we were playing in this uh, disc golf tournament a few weeks ago, me and Jasper. And uh, we got paired with these guys who were just some characters, man. It was awesome. And, uh, and, and they asked that question that no pastor ever wants to hear, right? What do you guys do for a living? It's like, oh, man. You know, because they're, they're, they're just awesome. I mean, they're, they're cool guys. And I just know this is going to kill our day. This is going to kill the conversation. They're not going to talk to us anymore. I mean, they're, you know, they were colorful cats, to put it nicely. And, uh, and I didn't want that to die. I was enjoying it. And so uh, we're like six holes in, and they ask us this question. I'm like, dang. And so I just told him, I said, well, I, I pastor a church here in town. And uh, he's like, that's cool, you know? And the guy made this statement, which is so telling about the world's view of Christianity. And it's so telling about our ignorance to our own sin and our need for a Savior. He said, he said, I've got nothing wrong with religion. He said, if somebody finds comfort in religion, that's good for them. He said, I just don't need it, Right? And that's such a great picture into how the heart feels apart from Christ. How the heart feels apart from Him. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 7 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Paul is confessing, even as a believer, there's nothing good in my flesh. Nothing. It, it keeps me from doing the things I want to do. His whole diatribe there is just fascinating. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolish to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is the need that Jesus is revealing. It's the truth of those scriptures that Jesus is revealing to the crowd, namely that you need a work of God to take place in your life to realize what you really need in life, which is Jesus. And, and so he's saying, uh, Christ is really saying, he's saying, you, you, you wanted me to be king so that I could keep you happy and fed, because everybody knows that if we're fed, we're happy, right? And, at least men. But that's not what you really need. You need more than physical life. You need spiritual life. And this is what Jesus is telling them. The crowd just responds this way. It's like, this is a hard saying, Jesus. What, what are you doing? Like, 
No, who, who can listen to this? Let's, let's go do what we were doing before, and they just walk away from Jesus. In other words, they're saying, guys, this is, this is crazy. Y'all hear this guy right now? He, he's not what we thought he was going to be. This is not at all what we need. Let's, let's go back to what we were doing and continue waiting for the Messiah. They just couldn't see that it was him. Before they do walk away, though, from Jesus for now, Jesus reveals some outstanding truths about our spiritual need and his provision. You can just write these in your margin if you want to take notes. But one of the things he reveals about the, this hardening of heart is, is one, that Jesus knows our hearts and minds. Jesus knows our hearts and minds. Everything about us, even though these followers tried to be discreet about their complaints, it says that Jesus knew in himself what they were grumbling about. That is, in himself, he had everything he needed to know what they were grumbling about. He didn't need to hear it. He didn't need to see it. He just knew it in himself. Now, that's an incredible truth for us to understand. Here's why. Because none of our complaints, none of our gripes about life, none of our complaints or gripes about God's Word or about God Himself go unknown. You are not hiding those things. He knows them all, and yet He still offers Himself to us. Amen? The second thing that this reveals is that or that Jesus reveals here, is that it's the Spirit who gives life. This too is great news because our hearts and minds are naturally bent towards sin and away from God. We need a supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit to give us true life. Jesus says this. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That word, the flesh, there literally means your mind, your emotions, your will. Everything that you're made up of is of no help at all to bring life to you spiritually. That It's the Spirit who gives life. And he backs that up by saying, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And he's reminding them of what he said earlier in verse 44. If you remember that from last week, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But if you'll notice, there's a, there's a difference there in the words he uses. Last week, he used the word draw. This week he uses the word granted. Those are different words. And so Jesus is literally saying in these two statements that God draws souls to me by giving them grace to come. God draws people to the Son by giving them the grace to come, the strength to come, the new heart. Grace changes your desires and it removes that old heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh as Ezekiel prophesies. Now this often offends the crowds because, well, because we want to be God. We, we want to maintain our self-sufficiency. Isn't this the result of the very first sin? Many of you are familiar with the Garden of Eden and the temptation there of Satan to Eve. What does he do? He comes to her and he says, about this fruit, which she says, we've been told we can't eat of that, and the day that we eat it, we will die. And Satan says what? He says, you won't die. He said, God knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, what Satan was saying is, if you eat this fruit, you won't need God, because you'll be like him. Now, the problem is, it didn't work, did it? 
That wasn't the truth. It was deception. It was a lie. And so what happened is, as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, so did we. The creator of all things, we, we rebelled against God, the creator of all things, and we had to pay the price that we owed. Our sin fractured our hearts. It, it fractures us. And so therefore, what we see now is that the, the sinner, the person apart from God, has the moral inability to choose Christ. And that that must be overcome by the Spirit of God. That there must be a work which brings that person to life. That happens by God's grace. When we come to Jesus, it is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, that saving, that faith, is not of yourselves. It is the work of God so that no one can boast. Again, when we want to be God, what we're saying is, I want to maintain my pride. I want me to be the one who caused this. I want me to be the center of attention. I want me to get the glory in this. That quote from Whitfield last week was just so good. If, if we deny this idea that God draws us or that He grants us the ability to come, then we must partly, at least, glory in ourselves because we think we caused it. It was George Whitfield, a guy much smarter than myself. And so we, because our flesh can't comprehend the thing of God, the first response normally to the gospel is not the softening of our heart, but the hardening of our heart because of our flesh. Now, thankfully, this is not where it ends. Verse 67, so Jesus, after this crowd of maybe thousands, leaves him. He turns to the twelve and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, bless him. It's always a, that's a brother ready to talk. I know a few of y'all here, right? He stands up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's what I'm talking about, right? He says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter gets it right there. But Jesus still wants to remind him of something. He says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Hold on, Jesus, we ain't, we ain't got that far yet, right? I mean, now he inserts here, as verse 71 says, he says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus had not brought up Judas yet. Judas had not been brought into the picture of John yet. And here he is. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's talk about how the words of eternal life will either harden your heart or they will soften your heart. That's the, the phrase. That was the, the cliffhanger. I'm creative, I know. In these verses, we have the opposite side of the coin, right? The, the twelve are hearing and seeing the same things that the crowd does. The, the crowd, though, is hardened and they walk away while the disciples are softened and affirm their faith in Him. Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And so Peter steps up to the plate. He answers for the other 11, which he really shouldn't have done. He should have just kind of spoke for himself, but he didn't. But he says the right thing. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying, Jesus, my 
Lord. You are the bread of life. I, I, I mean we, Jesus, we have seen your work. We have heard your words. You have the words of eternal life. You just said so. And we believe that. And we have come to know, Jesus, that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, you can just hear the conviction of those truths in Peter's voice. Though he does not fully understand it all. I mean, Peter's young in this. This is early in Peter's walk with Christ. So he he certainly doesn't fully understand everything. He just knows that what he's seeing and what he believes is true. He's found life in Christ. He knows that he's the promised Messiah. And his response is exactly what John hopes for his readers. His response is exactly what John has said I wrote this book about. Isn't it? Except for you and me, John hopes, he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you may find life in His name. So when you come to Jesus, and you see Jesus as the bread of life, two things happen. You can write these in your margin if you want to. Number one, your heart is softened, or transformed may be a better word. When you come to Christ, your heart is transformed. Those words, to who else can we go? They reveal a heart that has been softened or transformed by the gospel. Never to be the same again. Peter is saying, first of all, he's saying, you are Lord, when he says Lord. And he's essentially saying, we've tried everything else. Nothing is like you. Where else would we go? Do you feel that? Just pause with it and kind of read it slowly. Do you feel that conviction? Peter realized his need for true bread, but he didn't realize it until he encountered true bread. He didn't realize it until he encountered the bread of life. Friends, let us never forget that in Christ we live, but in all other things we die. Spiritually, eternally, forever. He was, Peter was, softened by the same truth that led the crowds to be hardened. Not only is your heart softened, but the second thing that happens from this encounter with Christ, the softening of your heart, is that you grow in Christ's likeness. There will be growth in Christ's likeness. When when Jesus becomes Lord, when He becomes your master or your ruler, which is what the word Lord implies, then nothing else matters to you. That's not that nothing else will matter in those moments of hunger and thirsting. It's that you'll begin to see that there is a lot of false bread out there. Nobody's amen in that. (laughs) There is a lot of false bread out there. There's a lot of false bread being offered to us every single day. And you, I know you can because I see it. I see the hunger and the thirst in me for things that are false. For things that seek to only steal and to kill and to destroy my life. But but then I've seen true bread. 
And even having seen true bread, I still find myself often picking up the false bread and eating of it. Only by God's grace to finally come to the realization that that bread will not satisfy my soul. Only Jesus satisfies us fully. That's it. All other else is rubbish. It's false. It gives you false hope. It gives you a false sense of security. It leads you down a path which will destroy your life. We know this. We know it in our own hearts and we've seen the stories. Only Jesus gives us life. And He does it by giving His life for us. And this is the truth that Jesus wanted the people to see, which they just kind of found offensive. He does it because His body will be broken, His blood will be spilled out on the cross because none of us could do that. None of us were getting in that way. By His perfect sacrifice, He offers salvation to everyone. That is why Jesus says, I am, this was last week, but let's go ahead and repeat it. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, the crowds find this appalling because, well, I mean, it looks like Jesus is promoting cannibalism, doesn't it? Right? You've never heard anything like this before. These, these people are encountering this for the very first time. What does that mean? Who can understand this? Jesus isn't promoting cannibalism. No one has ever actually eaten his flesh or drink his blood. That's not what he's saying has to happen here. He is speaking about the cross. He is speaking about his death to come. And if we continually come to Him for our soul satisfaction, making Him the object of our hunger and our thirst, then and only then will we be filled with life. That's it. And He says that you are filled by abiding in Me, and I will abide in you. That's His promise to us. The more you hunger, the more you thirst, the more I feel. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the woes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is saying here, and in last week's text, in this chapter, He's saying, if you abide in Me, I will abide in you. This is His promise to us. There won't be anyone who wants to abide that the Father doesn't abide in. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, when you want to abide in me, I will abide in you. And that causes our growth in Christ's likeness. When you abide in Christ, the more you grow in Him, the more your self-sufficiency is deconstructed. And we see our need for Him. I've said it before, but my goodness, it's worth saying again. It's one of those truths you hate to, you just hate to realize one day. You hate to wake up and say, God, it's true. <laughs> but it happens. I am 
not nearly as much like Christ at 31 years old as I thought I would be when I was 10 years old. Anybody else where you thought you would be at your age? You're like, oh, I'm there. Shoot, I done surpassed it. I mean, I, I'm being serious. Like, I, I am not as good as I thought I would be. But, I, you know, the, the adverse is true. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how much I need Him. The closer He draws me to Himself and I draw to Him, the more I realize I am a wretched, foul, nasty-hearted human being, stone-cold dead in my sins, and I needed Jesus to give me life. And He did. So I am forever grateful, as I hope you are too, for the Father's drawing me to His Son by giving me His grace and mercy. I think that's it. I, I think that's the message here. And, and here's why I think this applies to us. So what does it all mean? John chapter 6, what does all of this mean for us today? Well, first, it means that the words of eternal life will either harden your heart or soften your heart. And, and here's what I mean by that. This is, this is what the gospel message does. It, there is no neutrality with the gospel when you hear it. You, you either respond by, by hunkering down in your hardness of heart and saying, I'm not budging. Or you respond by being broken before a holy, perfect God who is drawing you to Himself. That's it. Tell me where there would be neutrality in the gospel message. I don't see it. I don't think it's there. And I think that's why the crowds here have responded the way they have. Now, why is that important? The Puritans used to say this. Puritans were... Man, they're awesome. They're hard to read, but they're amazing. I said this. They said, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. That was how they summed up the gospel message. That the same message which hardens some will melt some. The gospel will cause some to be hardened, some to be softened. There, there is no neutrality. Now, here is what you cannot hear in this message. Just because some are hardened does not mean they'll stay that way. That is not the message of John 6. In fact, it's totally opposite. As long as there is breath, there is hope. Now, we could get into a lot on this, but here's... The example I just want to throw before you, one that I think we're all fairly familiar with, the Apostle Paul. His name was Saul before he came the, became the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. and He was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christianity. He looked on and agreed to and commended the murder of Stephen, a young Christian who was standing up for his faith, stoned outside a city, drug outside and stoned, and Paul looked on and said, right on. 
more or less. It's probably not the Greek word used, but. But that was Paul. And then, or that was Saul. And then Saul, on his way to Damascus to continue his persecution of Christians, sees a light in the middle of the day in uh, the desert, which overwhelms the light of the sun in that moment. And it knocks him from his donkey or whatever he's traveling on. And he is blinded. And he says, Who are you, Lord? And the rest is history. Two-thirds of what you read in the New Testament is Paul. He became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. There will never be another missionary like Paul. As long as there's breath, there's hope. No one, no one, no one is too far from God's saving grace. We must have this compass, the man, the, the, this confidence, because the man who was a murderer of Christians before the greatest became the greatest missionary ever. We must believe that God will draw anyone to Himself. Amen. The temptation to see things like this is to think, man, then, then who do I share the gospel with, or what's the point in even getting up and preaching? What's the point of even living for the Lord? The point is, God knows, but you don't. And so we love all, we share the gospel with all, and we pray for converting power through our works. That the Lord would save people. Second, like I said, there's a lot you could get into there. Half of that wasn't in my notes, so let's move forward. Second, I think the second implication of this anyway is that there is hostility to the gospel, certainly. People don't like it. But I think that hostility, at least from Christians, should be met with boldness and love and a continuing forward, not a shrinking backward. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says this about us. It says, For we are the aroma of of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So he's saying among those who are being saved, we're the aroma of Christ. And then he says, and among those who are perishing, we are also the aroma of Christ. But the message is different. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, it's a fragrance from life to life. By living for Christ, you will experience in people all around you and in yourself at times, hardening of hearts and softening of hearts. Now, if we know this, then we shouldn't be shocked. We, we should live boldly for Him. We should risk all for His name's sake. We should do this because His plan will not be stopped by the devil or anyone else. Now, how do we know that? Well, one, he's God, but I know that that's not good enough for some of us. We want to know why. Like, how, Kyle, can I know that? I think Judas is thrown in here as an example of this. I think Judas is, Judas is thrown in at the end of this to remind us and to help us understand God's sovereignty better. Have you ever wondered why Jesus chose Judas? Especially now that you've read that Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe and who wouldn't and who would betray him? Do you wonder, like, why, would, why did he choose him then? We did it 
to fulfill the plan of salvation. And for the plan of salvation to be fulfilled, Christ had to die. For Christ to die, evil men would have to do something to a perfect Messiah. They would have to murder Him. And so what we see here is that God is sovereign over all things. Even the devil's evil contributes to God's ultimate plan. That God is sovereign over all of those things. Now, Acts 2.22-23 confirms this for us. This is not me making stuff up. We, we see there as Luke writes, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Well, he's, sorry, it's from Peter's sermon, but Luke's writing it. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This is the Jesus we're all looking at right now, right? In John 6, this is what he says about him. He says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So even the devil's evil is used to accomplish the greatest good the world has ever seen. The death of Christ, the greatest evil we've seen, but also the greatest good for our souls that we've ever seen. The old saint Augustine of Hippo, he sums this truth up well. He says, For as wicked men make a bad use of the good works of God, so, on the contrary, God makes a good use of the evil works of wicked men. And, and therefore, you can read Paul's confidence, and Paul's confidence can become your own in Romans 8, which says this. I just want to read it to you, and this is how I'm going to get you out of here today. This is Paul writing in Romans 8 about the accomplishment of Christ. Now I'm just going to start in verse 28 and read, read a few verses. 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And you know, just listen if you can. No distractions, don't put anything away. Just listen. Let, let God's Word give you life today. For, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So, in John 6, Jesus says this, does He not? Those whom the Father draws to Me will come to Me, and I will in no way cast them out. Justified and glorified. Amen? Let's keep reading. Verse 31, He says, What then shall we say to these things? I love that the first thing he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So he's saying, God's people be fearless. Because it is God who justifies you. You're not justifying yourself. No one can bring a charge against you as someone who is called by God. So be fearless. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's keep reading. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So now it's not that just that God has called you and justified you. It's that Christ is in heaven interceding on your behalf right now. There's no greater comfort ever in this world besides that. Who, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, no, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. There's not a greater confidence for us today. God, God's work in our lives and in the lives of others will not be overcome. It will not be defeated by Satan. It just won't. He is not on the same level as God. He's been defeated already. So let's trust God in all things as our true bread and life. Let's come to Him with our hunger, with our thirsting. Hostility will come. We see it even now in our nation. But we have the promise of eternal life. Of eternal life. Not life. That'd be awful. <laughs> Though if I had to suffer that and still get to go to heaven, I would. Amen. Here we go. Make it spiritual. I can Jesus juke myself. I got that. All right. So here's the truth. Alan, will you come, buddy? Because of Christ, we will stand and see it through. I don't know if you caught the wordplay in that song earlier. The whole song, as they were playing earlier, is as if I stand and see it through. If I stand and see it through. If I stand and see it through. And then at the very end, the words change and says, and I will stand and see it through. All because of Christ. Would you stand to your feet this morning and get ready to sing your lungs out?